Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The First Thought talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Galway. Our nearest neighbour seems to be in an ongoing state of division and uncertainty for the last number of years, a situation which has been further exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. With the arrival of Brexit, something that we've all forgotten about, but is still there, like some horrible beast lurking in the background, there's a distinct possibility before the end of the year that we're going to see this happening. So where to next for an increasingly disunited kingdom? John Lanchester, who you see on the screen behind me here, this is our first screen event tonight. hoping that it all goes as well as it can. John is a well-known novelist and journalist, writes for the the London Review of Books, and he's known for explaining the 2007 financial crisis to us all. I still remember what a collateralized debt obligation is from reading his stuff. I don't know if that's any good to me anymore. I hope it isn't any good to me anymore because they were very bad things. Uh, So he's streaming into us from London. And Finchon O'Toole, who needs no introduction. He's one of Ireland's best-known journalists, and he's known for, among other things, explaining Brexit and its roots to us all and to the English, which was tremendous fun at the time. They're both going to discuss the situation and bring their considerable analytical powers to bear on that most distressful country. Our moderator, who we're delighted to have with us, is Martina Fitzgerald, journalist and author of Madam Politician, a fascinating study of Irish female politicians. And many of you remember her as RTE political correspondent from 2013 to 2018. She's going to guide our two eminent panelists through the uh, vexed issue of the state of the UK. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And I think before we begin, I think we should acknowledge the hard work and planning that has gone into this series of talks by Katrina and all the team. So a round of applause to them for getting the show. Now, we are discussing tonight the state of the United Kingdom. And for some time now, as Katrina was pointing out, uh, Britain has been consumed by caustic debate about immigration, nationalism, elitism, racism, public services, civil service, and so on. And that's without mentioning COVID-19, and of course, to paraphrase Game of Thrones, Brexit is coming. So we're very fortunate this evening to have two very astute observers um, of British history, society, politics, and economic affairs to tease out these issues. And I'm going to start with our video link uh, guest, John, because in 2018, I was looking at an article that you wrote, and this is not to catch you out, but you wrote how fast that decade had gone by since the credit crunch in 2008. And that you also pointed out some of the changes in that period. And in 2008, Gordon Brown was the British Prime Minister. Uh, Ken Livingstone was the London Mayor. Uh, MySpace was the biggest social network. Does anyone remember that? 
I had to look it up. And also the odds of Leicester winning the premiership were 5,000 to one. And you kindly put that in context by pointing out the odds of finding the Loch Ness Monster were 500 to one. <laughs> now, that was, you know, 2008. But what were the odds you suggested in 2008 of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States, Theresa May even leading uh, the Conservative Party, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party, and of course, Britain voting to leave Brexit. So you wrote that article in 2018. Now I'm going to put to you, has there been seismic changes in just less than two years in British politics, society, when you look at Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, COVID, and even in, this, in the first few months of this year, he's evaporated a 26-point lead. So what's your prognosis on the state of the United Kingdom today? Well, I think there has been um, astonishing change, but in some ways it's been in the same direction of travel. Um, you know, the themes of populism and of... Um, sort of oversimplified solution to complex problems, the problems essentially to do with globalization, modernity, borders, all those things. Um, but the direction of travel hasn't really changed, I don't think, since um, 2018. It's been more spectacular and more lurid. But a, but a lot of the themes um, were already there, um, you know, in embryo. It's just, it's sort of, uh, everything has really um, spiraled and then COVID has added this uh, extraordinary dimension of, of um, additional catastrophe. And Fintan, to you on that, are you amazed at the changes that have taken place in a very short period of time in Britain? Maybe you're not, but it does seem extraordinary because even John was writing in 2019 that he was hoping the next few years would be better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's change, isn't it? But, but, but also stuck. You know, so it's this, it's this weird conjunction of, in one way, like dramatic change, you know, the extraordinary rise of Boris Johnson, uh, perhaps even <laughs> the very fast fall of Boris Johnson, perhaps, you know, um, uh, you know, all of these kind of dramatic political events. Uh, and yet this sense of being completely stuck and, and stuck at that Brexit moment, really, because it's a moment you can't get out of, you know, it's, it's a moment which cannot be fulfilled, you know, so... Uh, of course, the drama of the pandemic has, to some extent, overtaken it. But, but you know, as, as you were saying in, in, in the introduction, you know, it's, 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 you've got these layers of different things, really, that are, that are there. Um, and in a way, there's just this, this uh, two things that are big. So even if you leave aside the pandemic, that are entirely unresolved and are nowhere closer to being resolved now than they were, I think, in 2016. One is Brexit itself. What the hell does it actually mean? What's it for? What's gained from it? Um, and the second is, is the identity crisis within the UK itself. Right? So in a way, one of the things that feeds into Brexit is the pre-existing crisis of British identity, mm -hmm. the rise of Scottish nationalism, to a lesser extent Welsh nationalism, the Belfast Agreement with its long-term implications for Northern Ireland, um, all that stuff then kind of producing an English nationalism, which, which results in, in, in Brexit. But Brexit's not an answer to the English question, you know. And I remember when, when shortly after the Brexit vote, uh, I, I, one of the things that came into my head was Bernard Shaw, whom I'm fond of, you know, who loved provoking um, the, the English in particular, but 
over 100 years ago, Shaw you know, wrote a piece uh, asking the question, are the English ready for self-government? <laughs> and of course it was humorous and provocative and it was, a, it was taking the piss out of the colonial condescension towards Ireland. You know, is Ireland ready for self-government? Are the, you know, all the other colonies ready for self-government? Um, but it, it's become, I think, a very potent question um, because really where we seem to be heading is towards some form of English self-government and it's not going well, partly because it's not even acknowledged. And I'm going to start at the very beginning, the state of the union, because you've picked up on that there. And John, if you look at even their response to COVID, it harks back to Brexit. Different parts of the United Kingdom are responding in different ways. The total confusion over the quarantine rules for Portugal um, that caused passengers just, you know, such, such confusion. But will we have a union? you know, post-Brexit, will we have a union? The State of the Union doesn't look too good at the moment, given that everybody is acting in different ways. No, I mean, it's, it's clearly chaotic and dysfunctional um, to, um, you know, an extent it's really impossible to exaggerate. I think some of the thing about quarantines is that the devolved administrations really, really get a, a deep buzz out of embarrassing Johnson. And so one of the things about you know, changing the rules. So the rules on quarantine is coming back from France, which is where I was at the time. Um, it was Sturgeon who insisted on, Nicola Sturgeon who insisted on bringing it forward um, the next day. The, the UK government wanted to give people until um, the Sunday morning and the um, Scots insisted on doing it on Saturday. And it's not clear to me that that protects a particularly large number of people, but it does a fantastic job of emphasizing the chaos and dysfunction between the devolved administrations and the UK government. I think, you know, the union is clearly in an extremely weak position at the moment. Um, I think the structural weaknesses in the constitution of the UK, the fact that we have this sort of semi-devolution, um, and the fact that that creates these, um, these sort of soft spots and how the state functions. Um, you know, Brexit put enormous pressure on that and it has taken it to a completely different level. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to stress uh, the quarantine thing in particular. Um, you know, it feels like a, a, a fairly profound failure of the state here because, as I say, we came back from France. There were all these dramatic thing, forms you were supposed to fill out things you're supposed to do. And then none of it's checked at all. There were no border checks when we came through. Um, we, we quarantined when we got back. Luckily, we stayed in Germany for a week en route, so we'd already done a week of quarantine. But, you know, completely self-isolated, didn't go out. But it felt like something um, slightly bizarre, but it's like an honour system. You know, there's no enforcement, there's no state mechanism involved in that at any point at all. And it feels really as if um, the, there's a kind of, uh, at a moment when, you know, that you can't get a clearer opportunity for a state to function efficiently than epidemic. You think, what, what are states for to keep their citizens safe? Um, and it's surreal and disturbing that there's a kind of just an inaction. And you're living it, Fintan, you're observing it, <laughs> luckily from a distance. But on, on that theme of 
just the fact that Scotland and Wales are doing their own things yeah. and, and the impact this has, and I know it's a theme you want to explore on Britishness. Yeah, you know, it, it, we're talking about, I suppose, what's, what's changed. And certainly one of the things that would have been utterly unimaginable five years ago, you know, was that in a pandemic, you know, a, a, a public health emergency, right, which does not discriminate about whether you're Scottish or Welsh or British or Irish, doesn't, doesn't care. So you, you would think if there was going to be a moment of national unity, you know, that would bring everybody together, and you know, it, it would become irrelevant whether you were in Edinburgh or you were in London or, or, or in Belfast. Um, you would think this would be it, you know. And, and instead, and this is the measure of change, right, is, is that people have been looking to their devolved governments as the source of authority. And not only that, but by and large, Scotland and Wales, and to some extent Belfast, actually, mm. have been doing better than London. You've, you've actually had this situation where increasingly uh, Johnson's government has had to follow Sturgeon, uh, you know, and, and in relation to the education results, for example, we've seen that, um, but also in, you know, in, in, in quite a number of details about pandemic management, they've had to do it. And that, that just was not imaginable. You know, it, it just wasn't imaginable. But the reason it's happening is the same reason we didn't follow London. So if you think about this, what would have happened in a pandemic five years ago? What would the first thought on the minds of Irish civil servants mm -hmm. have been, oh, I wonder what they're doing in London? You know? and, and not entirely unreasonably, it's not just no, cultural. Can... You would have said, look, they're, they're, they're really expert at stuff. They've got more resources, they more scientists. They, they, you know, let's find out what they're doing and, and really take that very seriously. Would that thought have occurred to a single civil servant or a politician in Dublin when the pandemic was breaking out in, 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 in February? No. Why? Because there's a huge crisis of governance. You, know? you, you cannot elect a liar. You, know, you can't elect somebody who's known as a liar. You can't elect somebody who's known as a showman, you know, a bluffer, and expect then to have governing authority. You know, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. There are so many issues to be explored there, and we're going to start off with substance over celebrity. This is a time for science, for facts, for detail, and none of which you would associate with Boris Johnson uh, necessarily. And John, you once uh, wrote that he has based his career on celebrity, that he put on a buffoon mask and, to become a celebrity, and now he can't take it off. And Fintan, you have, you know, say, uh, you have written and pointed to, he's kind of operated you know, according to Oscar Wilde's quote, he treats all things, to paraphrase, serious things trivially, and, ser you know, serious things trivially, and, you know, gives, a, you know, a priority to the trivial. Yeah. Um, John, what do you, he's not the man for this time. Is that a fair comment, or are we being harsh? No, a grotesque understatement, I'd say. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I think it would be, almost impossible to find anyone worse. I mean, uh, the, 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 we got to this position, um, you, you know, it's like, it's like buses, you know, you wait for the worst prime minister in British history and then three come along in a row. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, uh, Cameron was a catastrophe. It seemed impossible to do worse than that. May astonishingly to do worse than that. And then Johnson has taken it to a completely other level. Um, 
partly for ideological reasons. The, the, the thing about um, the gap between the devolved administrations and the UK government is, is that you know, they do, um, in Westminster, the Tories do believe in laissez-faire. Um, they were slow to lock down and they're reluctant to intervene on the kind of scale and with the kind of severity that you need just because they um, have this sort of um, belief that doesn't really apply in a pandemic about the primacy of individual liberty and the pointlessness of state action. Um, and uh, it's clearly um, a, just a maladaptive belief. You know, it's an ideology you can't afford to have at the moment like this. But, but I think there's also, uh, in addition to that, just a simple question of competence. I mean, anyone who's followed Johnson's career could have told you that premiership is certain to end in disaster. He, he's not interested in detail. He's not interested in administration. He, his sort of natural instincts are those of an after-dinner speaker. Um, he's lazy. He, so he phones it in. Uh, I think the, Disaster that would, would or is always going to happen is just this, you know, um, unfortunately a catastrophic global pandemic. And it, you know, it, it, Johnson is always going to implode. He just is that person. He's just very straightforwardly not up to the job. And just there is this unfortunate, tragic coincidence of, uh, you know, of, uh, a set of circumstances that he's just not capable of rising to. And that, by the way, is leaving out Brexit which is basically his fault. And can I take that, uh, Fintan, that point? You, you were trying to cheer us all up, uh, I think, during the pandemic by, by writing a, a column on five things <laughs> that are good news, uh, are five things to make us happy, and one of them was the strong men are weak. Yeah. And Boris Johnson obviously falls into that category, but he's not on his own. There is a kind of typical leader that has risen through populism. Yeah, you know, I mean, Johnson is a is obviously in one way um, part of a much broader um, movement towards these kind of populist celebrity type leaders um, uh, who you know use nationalism essentially as the as the kind of core appeal. Um, he's different in 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 the sense that the others don't at least um, consciously use buffoonery, right? So, so Johnson is a kind of postmodern extra added version of it, right, where everything is in quotation marks, nothing is serious, all that sort of stuff. But, but, um, but, but he's, he's tried to use the same things. And, and as, as John was saying, the, the, the big problem with this is that um, uh, it's, it's, this, this gesture right, is, is based around the fact that I embody the nation. And that's the basic story that Trump tells, that Orban tells, that Modi tells in India, you know, whatever. Um, and to some extent, in a bizarre way, that worked for Johnson. <laughs> it's very hard to understand how people would say, yeah, he embodies um, my nation. I, I really think that's great. <laughs> but, you know, he, he won an 81-seat majority and, and huge numbers of people. Uh, uh, so the, the celebrity thing kind of worked for him. You know, it, it, it's created this, this bond somehow. And people like him and, and identify with him. Um, 
but, but it, it, it suddenly collapses when, when you need something different. You actually just need competence. You, know, you need Gordon Brown, like you need a doer Scott you know, who's just saying, this is what you're doing, this is, what, you know, this is how we're reacting. I mean, if you think about how quickly, and John knows much more about this than I do, but you know, think about how quickly Brown responded to the global banking collapse in 2008. Right? You know, very, very quick, very authoritative, you know, had, had serious things to say and do with it. And then you think about the, just the incompetence of Johnson, the dithering, the inability to deal with it, because it's serious stuff, I don't want to deal with it. And just, it's worth saying that the, the estimate of epidemiologists in Britain is that basically, they don't say this directly, but that the, the delay that Johnson was responsible for has cost somewhere between 20 and 25,000 lives. So he's, he's killed tens of thousands of his own citizens through this incompetence. And I think that's where the pandemic changes the the nature of people's relationship to these people because the, you, you can only afford risk if you feel safe. It's, it's the odd thing. If you feel I'm safe, I'll, I'll take a risk with everything, I'll throw everything up in the air. Throwing everything up in the air, doing the disruptive Dominic Cummings thing, when everything is already being disrupted, when you don't feel safe, is, it just doesn't match. But what does it say of the British can, can I add a, Can I add a thing on that? Indeed, John, yeah. Uh, on on uh, Finton's point about Johnson, um, I think that you, the, the celebrity, I, I know someone who knows him, and, who, and Johnson was 20 years ago saying that the old rule in, in, in Tory politics was that you, you, your capital, you made your fortune before you go into politics. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have it to spend when, um, when you're in high office. And he said, people don't understand that the modern form of capital that you need in politics is celebrity. So the celebrity was a completely conscious strategy and it provides a kind of insulation because he becomes a sort of character and that acts as a kind of buffer, his sort of fundamental unseriousness somehow priced in, it's taken for granted. The, the big problem with that, to Finton's point, is you know, he's incompetent, but also it's, it's very, his whole shtick is incredibly English. It's, it appeals to Southern Tories. It, it appeals slightly to people who, even if they don't like that type of person, know that that's the type of person that exists. That he, um, instead of you know, places like going to Eton and studying classics being a, a liability, which it is, easily could have been, it's sort of part of his comic persona and people allow for it but it plays catastrophically outside England. And, and um, you know, I was in Scotland a month or so ago, and it just, it's a reminder, you know, they're, they're just deeply allergic to that kind of self-congratulatory, bluffing, superficial, um, you know, woolly, story English thing, which thinks it's charming, but just other people just don't think it is. And just, just by being the kind of person he is, he, he weakens the union. But what does that say, and I could just ask both of you that, John, what does that say then about the British public when you look at Gordon Brown's career and so far when you look at Boris Johnson with his majority and that they seem to forgive him. People know that he, he lies on occasion. He made a debate in Brexit as Finton unravelled about you know, a prawn crisp and that it was under attack from Europe, which it wasn't. What does that say about the British public? I, I think there's a problem with the word British. 
Um, I don't think he is a British figure. I think he's very much an English figure. I mean, Finton's written about this. I, I completely share his analysis. I think um, English nationalism is the single biggest threat, basically, to the British project, the project of there being a United Kingdom. I think he appeals to an English audience, and I think that 2019 was a freak of circumstance, that thing that things were stuck, things were broken, um, you know, by virtue of voting for something that was impossible to deliver, Brexit. Essentially, nothing had changed between 2016 and 2019. And, you know, Cummings came up with his three-word slogan, get Brexit done. Um, and it's like take back control. It's a falsehood, it's an oversimplification. But it was a, a, just incredibly effective at the ballot box. Don't, and don't forget he was running against the least popular Labour leader from the all the time. But Fintan, doesn't he get away with an awful lot that Theresa May never got away with, or uh, Gordon Brown? It, 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 I mean, what does it really say to pick up on some of the issues that, that John raised there? What does it say? Because he's certainly no Churchill, which he models himself on. He's a he's a, he's the winner of a, a second winner of second prize maybe in a Winston Churchill impersonation contest, you know. And um, but 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 he is clever, you know. Like you have to say, so he's he, he's not an idiot, right? He plays the buffoon, but he's not an idiot, right? And and I think what John was saying was brilliant about that idea of you know realizing that the capital you needed to create was this celebrity, and he he did it brilliantly. Um, and he he also has. Um, this, so what he's created, right, is, and it worked up until the pandemic, right, is, is this idea that, and I think this is very English, right, which is that actually taking things seriously marks you out as a bore, as, you know, somebody who doesn't get the point, doesn't get the joke. So his racism, for example, he is a, he is a, he is a racist, you know, he, and, and, you know, he's used racism all through his career. But he uses it cleverly in a way we say, "Oh, come on, you know, it just, that's just you know, of course I'm not a racist, you know, it's just a joke. If I call, if I call black children pickaninnies, well, sure, it's just a funny little word, isn't it? If I talk about their watermelon smiles, well, that's just you know, it's just funny, isn't it? You know, it, 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 and and th that does appeal, I think, to a population which is deeply disillusioned with politics. Right? So when people are disillusioned with politics, they say, well, at least he entertains us." And I think there's a weird thing that happens then as well, when it's not just in, in, in England, it's very much with Trump, you know, this paradox of authenticity, right? So that when people are so disillusioned by politics, they start thinking, well, they're all liars, they're all just frauds. So the one who's an open fraud, the one whom you know is lying to you, is authentic. And I remember watching a, um, a screening on, I think, on Channel 4 of a, of a focus group uh, during the, the election in Britain. And uh, it was in one of those Midlands seats, the Red Wall seats, which subsequently the Tories won by a handsome majority. Um, and, and there were people saying, these were working class Labour voters, you know, and this woman was saying, ah, you know, uh, Boris, I mean, he, he lies. I mean, if he lied to the Queen, he would lie to anybody. Uh, and you know what, he reminds me, he really, really reminds me of a bog brush. He really reminds me of a bog brush. Look at him, the way he looks. And I really like him, and I think I'm going to vote for him. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's that sort of, so you, you, you would have these sentences, the first bit of which, if you were watching as a pollster, you'd be like, oh my God, this is a disaster for this man. He, are people really 
you know, don't take him seriously at all, and the second part of which was, I'm going to vote for him. And I really like him. It was this, this likability notion that he's not pulling the wool over our eyes because we can see what he's doing and he's a kind of lovable buffoon and that's kind of nice. But he's also, he also has a plan, and I'm not talking about Brexit necessarily. Uh, Misha Lenny pointed out, described him, you call him as the strong, the strong men, he called them the iron men, and they say they're swept in by, you know, democratically, but then they try to undo all the democratic uh, pillars around them, the attack our undermining of the BBC, the overall of the, overhaul of the courts, uh, the civil service. Um, these are not positive actions, John, of a, of a leader and someone who believes very strongly in, in democracy. No, I don't. I think that his um, henchman, Dominic Cummings, has a sense of the British state not functioning as well as it should, that the institutions don't do what they're supposed to do, which I think, you know, is defensible, actually, as an analysis. But it's a bit like the... Um, Brexit being an attempt to address valid concerns about not being listened to, being ignored, being left behind, with a completely false, completely irrelevant answer, you know, because whatever the things that were wrong with Britain up to 2016 were, Brexit is like a category mistake of an answer. It just doesn't address any of the things it pretends to address. And I think um, part of what's coming with this moment with Johnson and Cummings is um, actually a feeling that the British state isn't sufficiently modernised, that the civil service doesn't function the way it should, that there are kind of disconnections in, inside it, um, with exactly the wrong solution, which is uh, a, a double, doubling down on the dose of populism and doubling down on the idea that it's all someone else's fault. If government isn't functioning properly, it's the fault of the BBC or it's the fault of the court, or it's the uh, you know, fault, fault of a liberal elite. And failing to address the fact that a lot of the things that are wrong with the state in Britain are actually to do with competence. We have got in a cycle of persistent redesigns of things like our education system, our health service, things like that. And in general, people don't want fundamental redesign of the health service. They just want the health service the way it is, but working better. People don't want a fundamental redesign of education. They want the system to have, but they just want schools to be better. And, and this thing about a crisis of competence in government, I think, un underlies a lot of the kind of um, problems and dissatisfactions of the British state. And just to come back to the point, Johnson is precisely the worst person in to address it. Um, Finton, I mean, you've said he's clever, um, but, and he has a plan. We may not like what he's pushing through, but he is pushing through his agenda in Britain in terms of the BBC, in terms of the courts, in terms of the civil service. That's very striking, uh, where the cabinet secretary resigned or is resigning, but really was pushed. Yeah. I mean, you see, Brexit is part of an authoritarian agenda, right? So you have to remember the reason why Brexit doesn't work. Like, let's, let's just establish the fact that, that Brexit is an entirely legitimate thing to want to do. You know, I think it's crazy. John thinks it's crazy. But, you know, the European Union is a voluntary institution. You can leave if you want. So, you know, it's, it's perfectly valid in that sense. 
the problem with it is that it, it, it has to dress itself up as various things which it cannot be. Right? So uh, this is where it creates a kind of vacuum which gets filled by authoritarianism. Right? So the first thing it presents itself as is a um, taking back control. Right? And, and, uh, and that's very, it's a brilliant slogan and it's absolutely perfect because it addresses a genuine sense that people feel that they're not in control of their own lives. Um, but what it then has to do, because, because that's just a slogan, it has to actually do the opposite, right? which is to centralize control. So one of the very powerful things you would find talking to English people was, I am fed up taking rules from unelected bureaucrats. <laughs> what do you get? You get the, the Dominic Cummings administration. I mean, Cummings is a much more powerful figure than Johnson is. You know, Cummings is, it's a Cummings' agenda that's, that's And that's he dominant. actually effectively got rid of the last, uh, you, know, you know. As you say, so we, we've had cabinet secretaries gone and now we've had the, the head of the civil service going. Um, and so, so, you, you, so that's one of the paradoxes, right, is take back control becomes centralized control, have it much more authoritarian. The second thing, of course, is that it's, it's a nationalist revolution which won't say it's a nationalist revolution, right? So it says, this is nationalism against Europe, but, it can't, but then you can't have Scottish nationalism against Britain, right? So, so the, the nationalism is supposed to stop somehow uh, as an expression of your identity and being only about Europe. And that then means that you have to deploy nationalism in a very negative way, right? Which is, if you can't have a positive content to your nationalism, what do you fill it with? Well, you fill it with, and we've seen this over and over again in other countries, you fill it with traitors. Who's, who's against the nation, right? So if you can't say what it's for, you can always say, well, it's, well, it's not them. It's not the citizens of nowhere. It's mm. not the immigrants. It's not the liberals. It's not the Scots. It's, you know, and you can go on and on, because there's any number of nots available, right? Uh, but that also leads towards an authoritarianism, because you're, you're identifying enemies, and you're saying, they're, they're not us. And the, the third paradox then, is, of course, is that it's a, it's a conservative revolution, right? That's that paradox, right? And, and uh, the problem with a conservative revolution is that you, you, you have to throw everything up in the air, tr you know, make, make everything unstable in order for it to stay the same in, in, or to have a version of what you think it should be like from the past. Um, and and that, that doesn't work either. I mean, one of the reasons why the Brexit thing has become such a nonsense is that, that it's, it's, it's the most weird appeal to people. What it's basically saying is, this is the biggest moment in our history for at least 50 years. It's one of the great moments, as Jacob Rees-Mogg says, it's crazy, it's Agincourt, it's Waterloo. Yeah. You know, it's one of the great moments in our history, but economically it will change nothing. We will still have all the benefits of being in the European Union. You don't have to worry about any change. <laughs> so everything is changing, nothing's changing. So you've got these three big paradoxes, and, and they don't make, the thing doesn't cohere, it doesn't make any sense. And then you have to fill it with, what is it? Well, well what Cummings will tell you really deep down, and you read his appalling blog post, right, is it's disruption for the sake of disruption. Now, on that very note of Dominic Cummings, uh, enter John Lanchester, um, he didn't go. He didn't resign. He wasn't asked to resign. And I don't think we'd, uh, you know, it's happened here where people have had to resign. And I don't think anyone would put us up as the model, you know. But at the same time, it was extraordinary that he didn't go. And uh, has cost an unquantifiable amount of political capital. Uh, I mean, it, it, as clear a self-inflicted wound as you can get. And, I think it was, it'd be easier to just 
I, my feeling at the time is I prefer him just to go on TV and say F off. You know, rather than say, I, got, I was worried that I couldn't see, so I put my kid in the back of the car and drove 60 miles to test my eyesight. It's better to just tell people to F off. Because that's in effect is what he's saying. F off, I'm not resigning. And, um, you know, even the Sunday sport, who, who, don't, who never write about politics, you know, their, their, their ideal uh, headline is Statue of Elvis Found on Moon. And uh, the front page was, you know, um, sh shock, um, was it shock announcements for British elite? Don't drive if you're blind. <laughs> and then a cut out mask of coming. Cut this out and put it over your face and you can do anything you want. Um, I'm just wondering so was, how Vinton you know, is going to follow that up in uh, illustrations, hand movements. <laughs> Um, on well, that note. Me, I mean, I, 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 in, I often think of the, um, that, great, that great thing in Irish politics of the goo-boo factor. Do you remember that? Grotesque, yeah. grotesque yeah. unnatural, grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented. Yes. And, you know, we, we, in the UK, a lot of goo-boo factor at the moment. We'll, we'll, we'll trade it, you know, in the new regime, we can export goo-boo to you. You can have it. But, but it, it, it is, you know, it, it's not trivial because, you know, the, the fundamental test of whether a democracy is working is whether or not someone who uh, openly flouts the rules that apply to everybody else can stay in office. You know, it's, it's a really basic test, you know. And um, again, this is the great paradox, of course, isn't it? So the Brexiteers who kept saying, you know, the problem is with the European Union, it's full of these completely unaccountable bureaucrats whom nobody elected, you know, and who don't have to answer to anybody. Well, Phil Hogan had to go, and he had to go because of moral pressure. You know, democracy worked. You know, the ordinary people, not just in Ireland, but, but around Europe. I mean, von der Leyen was, 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 this was a European issue, and von der Leyen was thinking, if this guy doesn't go, this, this really damages the credibility of the European Commission, and I, we, we can't have that. And it was really clear she wasn't going to, to, to keep him there. Um, and, and the Irish government was thinking the same thing. And this is not to say that you know, the European Union is a perfect democracy or that Ireland is a perfect democracy, but there's something still functioning you know, when that level of basic accountability still, still functions. And when the Cummings thing happened, and uh, as, as, as John was saying, it was, it, was, it was beyond the F off. You know, it, it was... It was, I'm, I'm going, I, I have such contempt for you, right, that I'm not even going to bother, I've had lots of time to think up a story, I'm not even going to really bother, you know, mm. <laughs> I'm just going to give you some complete nonsense. Um, and I don't care whether you believe it or not, but it's because, uh, you know, and you can only do that if you know that you are entirely unaccountable, and you can only be unaccountable as an advisor if, if you know that you control the Prime Minister, right? So... It's impossible to think of any other version of this in, 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 in the history of British democracy. You know, it, 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 where, where as, as John was saying, like, so you're a new prime minister, you've got that amount of political capital. You know, you know, it's a fixed sum, and you spend it over however long you can stay in power. You're going to spend, what, half of that on one unelected advisor who's not even a member of the Tory party, by the way? You know, I mean, this was a demonstration of raw power, the power to be able to say to the overwhelming majority of, of Scots and Welsh people and Northern Irish people and English people, 
I don't actually give a good goddamn what you think. I'm in power and I am untouchable. And you've pointed out before, even before this began, about the contempt for rules, Boris Johnson's contempt for rules. But it, even the, some of the ministers, but Dominic Cummins, it was so blatant. We've seen scientific officers uh, having to resign. What does it say on a positive note about here that there was, there is now a culture of resignation because in the past it might have been in Britain where people resigned when they were caught and not necessarily here. There has been kind of a, of a reversal because Derek Leary resigned very quickly. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, we're far from a perfectly functioning political system or culture. Um, but, but, you know, there, there's still a thing called a moral economy. You know, there was a, a phrase that historians used to use about, you know, the way things happen in pre-modern societies. You know, there, there was a notion of certain things you could do and couldn't do. And I think because Ireland is still a very intimate local society, um, you know, everybody saw in the Eructus Gulf Society thing their own community. You know, all the people who've been, who've been doing extraordinary things in their own community of, you know, delivering meals or, you know, helping out people or without, any, without being asked, without any thanks, without any publicity, you know, and they saw all of that just being kind of saying, well, that's for you guys, it's not, it's not for us. And that, that was just fundamentally morally unacceptable. And I think what's happened in, in and at least, you know, to be fair, we, we still have a ruling class that somehow still recognizes that when it sees it, when it sees the outrage, it, it, it got it. I think, and uh, you know, John would be very interesting. But I mean, not, you know, I've, I've been saying this for a long time, but I, I mean, I, I think, you know, n not to be too French revolutionary about it, but you, you have a decadent ruling class. You know, you, you have a ruling class which has completely lost any sense of, of having responsibility to rule. It doesn't want to rule, it wants to be in power. It wants to use the power, it wants all the perks of power. It wants to give contracts to its friends. It wants to appoint its brother to the House of Lords. It wants to do all that kind of rubbish. But it's actually not interested in ruling. And, and this is astonishing. You know, th this was a ruling class which did rule huge chunks of the world, you know, which has very deep traditions of, of being able to manage things like wars and empires and, you know, God knows what. And it, 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 it lost any connection with, 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 with society, you know, so, so and, and Johnson is a kind of perfect uh, version of that, but Cummings even more so. And doesn't this hark back I think one thing about that, though, I, I think it's a sign of, it's one, it's one of Clinton's paradoxes that the open contempt and the, um, you know, untouchability and, you know, I, I'm not going to go and you can't make me. I think it's a, a, a sign of, extraordinary weakness on Jonathan's part because the only reason Cummings is untouchable is because Johnson can't govern without him. He, he doesn't he have an him. agenda. Well, I think it's more likely that, you know, Johnson, he wanted, he wanted to win. You know, he's a, as a boy, he talked about, you know, his ambition to kill. Um, he, it's a little bit like Cameron saying he wanted to be prime minister because he thought he'd be good at it. But that's not a reason for being prime minister. You, you, you want to be prime minister or Tijek because there's specific things you want to do for your country. Johnson doesn't actually have a plan beyond this sense of winning, coming top, coming ahead of the, you know, at the top of the greasy pole. 
And he, he genuinely needs Cummings. He's completely dependent on him because he doesn't actually have an agenda other, otherwise. He doesn't have a program of government. And so there's a deep, deep weakness um, embodied in that because it was obvious to absolutely everyone that Cummings had to go. And yet he didn't. And I suppose he was facilitated, I suppose, if I think of the Irish example, there's no way he would have been let away with that in Ireland by the media. There is a compliant media in some parts and a partisan media in Britain at the moment, in some quarters. It's, it's partly to do, it just reflects brute reality of power. Johnson's just won an 80-seat majority. Um, you know, and don't forget that was more recent. In, um, back in April, May. And what happens is as, as governments leak away power and authority, everybody gets braver. You know, the, the papers get braver. Um, you, you've seen it in America with the way um, reporters are being much, much more aggressive with Trump yeah. now that they suspect to be on the way out. And um, the whole sort of structure and institutions of public life. The tone changes once it looks like governments are critically weakened. Um, but, you know, a, a, a British Prime Minister with an 80-seat majority is close to in a completely invulnerable position in any democratic system anyway. You know, there aren't checks, checks and balances in Britain. Um, that's a deliberate thing, that to have kind of clear outcomes one way or the other. Um, and, you know, it, give it another six months or so um, and uh, you know, Cummings wouldn't have been able to survive that because the political capital has been burned through everyone's, everyone's sick of them. Um, would you still bet on him not being re-elected? On Johnson not being re-elected? Mm. I, 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 if I had to bet right now I would say Johnson won't even lead the Tories into the next election. Um, I mean the, the Tory party is the most successful political party in democratic history, right? You know, it's, it's essential, although it wasn't called at the time, but it's more or less been in power for most of the time since the early 19th century. You know, it's astonishingly good at holding power. And it's very good at doing that because it is absolutely viciously ruthless with its leaders. You know, it gets rid of them when that the balance of, of, of advantage seems to lie with doing so. Remember, I mean, they ruthlessly knifed Margaret Thatcher, you know, who was one of the most successful figures in their entire history whom they idolize, you know. Uh, the, the, so uh, I, think, I, think, I think John has expressed it very well, but I mean, Johnson is, 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 is not going to cease to be a liability. He's going to become more and more of a liability as time goes on, simply because it's not that, you know, he can't reboot, he can't do something else. He can't just say, actually, I'm not the buffoon anymore. Um, because actually his skills, he doesn't have other skills, right? So he doesn't have administrative skills. He's no good on the detail. Um, he doesn't have a real plan or an ideology or something that he really wants to achieve. Um, once Brexit is done, I think that's when the danger for Johnson really, really kicks in. Um, the ERG, the, the Brexit hardliners, uh, want him to be in power to get them to a no-deal Brexit, which is their nirvana. And in a way, once, once that's achieved, um, and when all the blowback from the pandemic really starts to, to hit in, 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 in the spring, um, I, I would be skeptical about whether Johnson can hold on or whether he's not going to be replaced. And I'm going to ask John that question because we've seen with Donald Trump in 2016 where the normal rules didn't apply. 
and that e-video uh, with that derogatory remark about a woman, there's no political leader that I can think of, or many people can think of, that would survive after that becoming public. And I know we're going to go to questions. Do you think he will be re-elected? Obviously, it depends on the timing. But would you see him, his, his days are gone, or do you think he can, the elastic band will come back? I thought that um, the only outside of coronavirus is that it would co cost Trump the presidency. I think without it, he might have, he might have, um, you know, beaten Biden. But I don't think I, I can't see it. Um, you know, winning. Having said which, there's this terrifying thing. You know, that polls are famously less good as a predictor of the future than betting markets. In in the world of finance, they look betting markets, not at polls. And the, and uh, if you want to really frighten yourself, go and have a look at the betting markets in the American presidential election, because currently it's a dead heat. Okay. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions, and there's plenty. We didn't even touch on the monarchy <laughs> or other issues with the royal defections. Does anyone have a question, please? And this gentleman here in the front. And I've got a group of few together. Yes? Um, just wonder if the panelists might tease out a lot of focus, obviously, on, on Johnson here. But on the lack of alternative, on you know, the, the, the Labour Party, and there being no, no real alternative there. And I just wonder if you might tease that out a little bit and where they're going now. There seems to be improvements, but um, maybe just talk about that a little bit, please. Okay, and there's another gentleman over there. I'm just going to group some of them together. Yeah, thank you, by the way. And what do the panel think about the future of the, the position of Northern Ireland in United Kingdom or in a, some kind of United Ireland? Is that something which will happen in, in the relatively recent uh, in the future. Okay. And anyone else? Okay. The two questions there. First of all, to John, the lack of an alternative in terms of the opposition and the Labour Party to Johnson, because we have, he, t he dominates so much of the debate. Um, and he do dominates so many of the headlines. Now, we've seen his 26-point uh, lead and the Conservatives' 26-point lead uh, evaporate this year. Um, but what about the lack of an alternative? Is Keir Starmer not doing a good job, or what's your analysis there? No, Starmer's done a much better job than Corbyn, and, you know, there are polls putting them almost neck and neck. I, th I think... Um, I, I totally agree with Finton. I don't think Johnson will fight the next election. Um, apart from anything else, he's not up to it, and also, frankly, I don't think he's fully recovered. Um, so I, I think the next election will probably be Sunak against Starmer, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. And I think it's actually going to be quite a, um, a difficult election for Labour because the Tories will have destroyed their reputation by that point. Um, Brexit will either be a full-on disaster if we have a hard Brexit, or a functioning arrangement like the one we used to have when we were in the EU, except a lot more expensive and with no lawmaking power. And so one or either of those pennies will have dropped, but the Tories will be in a weak position. But it's, it's quite hard to, for Labour to fight on a platform of anti-austerity, you know, um, support for industry, things like that, against a former chancellor who spent more money propping up the British economy than any chancellor in history. Uh, and um, I think Johnson would be an easy person to defeat in, uh, in four years' time. But I think 
Um, Starmer is a formidable campaigner. He makes Johnson visibly nervous for parliamentary questions. Mm. Uh, but I think um, the actual Tory he'll be running against, I think it'll be quite tricky. Um, what do you think of the Labour Party and under Keir Starmer? And I suppose, as um, our, our audience members said, the lack of an alternative. I think you've mentioned before the absence of Brexit in his, um, in his um, policies, or, you know, that he keeps it low. Yeah, I mean, Starmer has decided not to talk, just don't say the B word, you know, just, just whatever, whatever else you say, just don't, no, we're not talking about Brexit. Um, and in a way, strategically, he's probably right, because he can't win on it, right? The, Legally, the argument's over, right? You know, you know they're, they're, they're le they've left. The transition is coming to an end even now. Um, I think he, he may be in a position to begin to criticize preparations for it and, you know, the, the, the detail, but I think the, the issue itself is probably no win for him. Um, I, I think Starmer is impressive. You know, I, I think he showed incredible courage and patience under Jeremy Corbyn, you know, to keep plugging away uh, on, on, on Brexit and on all of those issues. He's a formidable figure. Um, I think, though, there's a reason why Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. I mean, there's a reason why the sort of centrist, third-way Labour Party mm. collapsed, right? And, you know, John's written so brilliantly about this, but it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, it led to the financial crash. It was, it was that sort of, that idea that we don't really need socialism, we just need to let finance capitalism rip, and then what, what the left will do is, is spend the money, you know, get, just get, get enough taxes and use them, you know, nicely. For, and, and did, I'm not saying, you know, very important things about child poverty and all sorts of very, very good stuff using it, but the, the, the left doesn't have an economic model, right? Um, which, which doesn't go down that road, and at the same time is, is more convincing than the model that, that Corbyn came up with. It, it, it seemed to me that the, the irony was that um, actually Labour's manifesto, not in the last election, but in the, in the Theresa May one, um, was actually a very, very good manifesto and was, was, was very sensible, very popular. Um, it just didn't have anybody convincing to sell it. Um, and, and then what they did in the last election was basically repeat that manifesto and then keep adding something else every day, you know, oh, free broadband, you know, for everybody. And so just destroy the credibility of it, which was already very weak with this very unpopular leader. But I think Labour has a real chance of, of, of rebuilding. Um, but but I, I, I take John's point, I mean, the economics of it are going to be very interesting. What's your alternative to a Tory who's spending lots of public money, you know, and, and we don't really know what that is. And Fintan, we had another question there about the future of the position of Northern Ireland in the Union and the possible united uh, Ireland, perhaps. In yeah, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a really interesting question because, and it's a difficult question for us, I think, because um, the, the British used to claim for centuries that they had an Irish question, you know, the Irish question. How are we going to solve the Irish question? And, we now have a British question, you know, which is, is whether we, it's all nice to be, have a certain amount of schadenfreude, you know, about, I often think it's like there's a fixed amount of crazy nationalist angst on the two islands, you know, when it went down on our island, it just went up on the other one, you know, and it's, it's kind of nice to be looking at it um, from the outside. Um, but it's not funny because, of course, it has very profound implications for this island. Um, Britishness is a part of this island, you know, there's a million people on the island who, who have a British identity. Exactly what that means is, of course, very much open to question, but it, it, it's something that we have to deal with and that we have to deal with, again, with another huge paradox. Let's imagine the union breaks up, which it's not 
you know, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that if we're here in a couple of years' time, Scotland has voted for independence. That's the end of the union. You know? what, what, what are unionists in Northern Ireland united to if there's no union? What does Britishness mean if, if, if Britain as an entity no longer really exists in the way that anybody has ever understood it? And yet, remember, we are constitutionally obliged to respect and sustain the British identity of those in Northern Ireland who, who wish to choose it. That's what we voted for when we voted for the Belfast Agreement. They have the right to be Irish or British or both as they may so choose. <laughs> that doesn't change. So yes, all of this makes a United Ireland much more likely, um, but not in conditions that any of us were thinking about, right? So this is not our story anymore in a way. Mm. It, it, it was supposed to be an Irish story, just as Scottish independence was a, was a Scottish story. Um, but but it's, it's, it's fundamentally dependent now on what happens in England and on, on where this kind of strange, anarchic, you know, risky, buffoonish polity leads itself over the next couple of years. We're going to have to pick up the pieces. So I would love to see United Ireland, but I, I, I really worry that it's going to be United Ireland by default as a result of somebody else's chaos. You know, we've got to pick up the pieces. And this is why I think... It's really important for us that we, we need to be engaging now. You know? mm. I think there re really needs to be a non-threatening, non-aggressive, genuinely open, genuinely pluralist dialogue about what's the future of this island if there's no union. And it has to be conducted in a really gentle, sensitive, respectful way that's not threatening anybody's identity. But there is some urgency to it, right? Because this is, this is, this is something which is happening, it's moving, and, and we really need to be trying to deal with it somehow. And John, on the note of Scot Scottish independence, um, obviously uh, Nicola Sturgeon lost seats the last time. She'll be leaving the stage at some point in the near future. What's the prognosis there? Well, I just thought, funny one of the positive cases of the future of the union it would, it would turn on the idea that Labour can't govern without the SNP. Labour has lost Scotland, and it, it feels permanent to me. It, that doesn't feel like something that's going to, you know, revert to the mean. That feels like a profound historic shift. So uh, in the event of Labour being the biggest party in the UK Parliament, they, they would SNP to govern. So you would have um, a kind of paradoxically perhaps, uh, a stronger link between Westminster and the other bits of the UK than you've had instead of being ruled by, you know, Tories from Westminster who, you know, eff effectively regard uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland as, as colonies. Now, final question for both of you. 2030, you're writing a column and you're looking back at the pace of change as John did in uh, 2018. Can you make three predictions of what you would see in relation to the state of the United Kingdom or things that may have surprised you or, or just things that may have happened? I think both of you believe that Boris Johnson is not going to be Prime Minister or even leader of the Conservative Party. Who wants to go first? Hoping John might, but <laughs> he's been a gentleman this time. I, I, I think I, I've been I've been planning all along. If things got tricky, I pretend that the thing is frozen, so I might. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Finton, I think you win. Okay, so um, 
Well, I, I, I would just say these as things that are more probable than not, right? Rather than because I think anybody who makes predictions right now, we're we're in a very strange time. But I I would I would suggest that at the very least, the shape of the United Kingdom will be completely different from what it is now. Right? If it's going to survive, it's going to survive as a radically reformed federal state, a genuine federal state, right? Rather than this sort of West, Westminster-centered polity. Um, but but I, I, I would think that's 50-50. So, you know, I, I, I would say at the moment the odds are on Scottish independence, and, and uh, that's, that's very profound. So there may not be a United Kingdom in, 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 in the terms that we, we're currently thinking about it. Um, secondly, I would suggest that there will be um, a reapplication to join the European Union. <laughs> um, I feel a column coming um, on. <laughs> wh why? Sim simply because Brexit doesn't solve the problem that led them into the, the common market as it was then in the first place, right? The white paper uh, that was led to British membership of the, of, of, of the common market um, just phrased it very simply. It said, if we, re if, if we don't join the common market, we, we, we will have um, left aside an imperial past and rejected a European future. And where will we be? And they've, the imperial past isn't coming back, much as some of them would like mm -hmm. it to. The European future is, is, is gone, but there is no other place for Britain to be, or England to be, or whatever, whatever that polity is. It's still an island in Europe. You know, it cannot uh, function, I think, uh, in, in, in any other way. And I think there, we will end up with a, with a, with a profound uh, rethinking of that. And the third thing, and this is completely what I would hope to see rather than what I, what I, I, I predict, but um, I do think there will be a return to, uh, to, to social democracy, you know, to, 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 to the great English, British, social democratic revolution of the post-war years, you know, because I think this is going to happen to all of us. I mean, you know, it's not just um, a British thing, but, but, you know, if you look at the, the profound attachment people have, have remade with the NHS, you know, which is the great survivor of, of British social democracy. You look at the fact that the, the universities, for example, um, are un completely unsustainable now as, as, as privatized institutions. You know, the, the, I think we're going to have a revolution in people coming back after the pandemic and saying, okay, what's important? And, and I think that could profoundly alter the political nature of, of Britain you know, and, and, and rediscover those, those great post-war values maybe. Thank you. And John, you've given us one version of the future, a very pessimistic one in the wall, uh, rising tides and, uh, and of course, an, a migrant uh, crisis, a refugee crisis. What's your vision for the UK in 10 years' time when you're writing that column? Well, the, fir the first and likeliest prediction is that at the moment we get, the UK gets 40% of its energy from abroad and 40% of its food from abroad. And those numbers will be the same because they're, they're consistent. So, which is one of the reasons uh, Brexit is, in my view, a bit of a waste of time because those fundamental, I mean, nothing's more fundamental than when you get your, where you get your food, where you'll get your energy, and there's no reason to think that will change. I think a, a penny will have dropped that most of the big problems facing the modern world are problems that nation states can't solve on their own. Uh, the two biggest are climate change and immigration. Immigration is often linked 
climate change, that would be increasingly obvious by 2030. And, and so um, that might well lead to a shift in the social democratic direction, but it certainly creates a pressure to move back towards international institutions, back towards pan-national and supranational uh, institutions which can address this problem, can't address climate change as an individual nation state. And, I, and I'd have thought that the likeliest thing would be a direction back, back applying towards the EU, an EU that might well have slightly changed. I think the likeliest future for the EU is the thing that Comrade Adenauer, the German Chancellor, said when it was confounded. He talked about a Europe of multiple geometries. And, and I think the likeliest thing is that you'll have, it's not quite a core and periphery, but you, you will have um, some countries that have an effectively unified fiscal and monetary system, and other countries that are a bit like Lego attach on certain different ways. Um, you know, a, a little bit like what you have now with countries like Norway and I think that um, Britain will be heading back in that direction, probably with some degree of fairly fundamental, um, if not a breakup of the UK, then an increased kind of devolution and more powers and. Um, you know, the thing that governments have talked about that country but not actually done of actually giving more power at the local level. I think there's the weaknesses in the British state can't be addressed without that. John Lanchester, Vincent O'Toole, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the Talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.